Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is a bonus episode of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon. In Machines Like Me, Ian McEwan's new novel, the narrator Charlie has just purchased a limited edition robot, Adam, the first truly viable manufactured human with plausible intelligence and looks. Here, McEwan talks to the TLS's fiction editor Toby Lishtig about forking political paths, human-robot relations and what, apart from short battery life, is holding us back. Toby began by asking McEwan why he chose to set the events in an alternative 1982. The first thing to say is that I wanted Alan Turing alive. Now, I, I could have had him born any time, but I was rather wedded to his suicide in 1954. And so in 1982, he'd be 70. So still, still vigorous and, you know, still... Still as vigorous as me, because I'm also 70. <laughs> and then in thinking a lot about the rather contingent nature of science and technology, how how it could easily have been at some other stage or how the Industrial Revolution need not have happened in the North Midlands yes, or in Britain at all or because we've had such sort of extraordinary and key figures in science, while we might have generally made the same progress without Darwin, uh, without Einstein, it, the timing would, could have been all different. So having got touring alive in 1982 and I, I remember to my very intense involvement in the Falklands War, posing it, writing about it, and one thing sort of grew out of another. I thought, well, then let's look at all the politics and how easily it could be different. We are now facing, you know, uh, a sort of Borgesian set of forking paths with Brexit. We'll go flying down one path. It'll seem self-evident in a while. We'll look back and sort of half forget all the possibilities that lay ahead of us. And the political possibilities that you explore in the novel, I mean, they, they do very, very playfully mirror our own. So you, you have... Tony Benn, who's this uh, sort of, well, entirely Corbyn-esque or rather Bennite uh, leader of the opposition. <laughs> well, uh, you know, very much Corbyn Benite. before he was Corbyn, <laughs> when he was Benn. Yep. And various other political currents. I mean, there's a, a wonderful description of the poll tax as an unpardonable act of mystifying self-harm, which may or may not recall something else that's going on there. Right. I, yes. I guess, I mean, you, you obviously had great fun with that, but I, I guess that forking path, you know, had a rather large political point about our present. I mean... Some of yeah. some of your yeah. Ben characters' um, ideas seem very attractive to me, and I just I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about the politics itself. Well, yes, I mean the Falklands War could so easily have been lost if, if the Argentinians had been able to prime their exit missiles, which is often um, forgotten. I think often forgotten, and uh, we would have been sitting ducks in the South Atlantic, and 
had a substantial part of that fleet been sunk, uh, Mrs. Thatcher's fortunes would have been different. The history of the of Britain would have gone down, you know, been slightly different. And certainly the Gautieri regime in Argentina would have been different too. And this all rests often on very, very tiny things. Tony Benn uh, becomes prime minister. Uh, he has a range of ideas that w- were around at the time, but have revived now that we are confronting already aspects of automation, which many working people, I think, have confused with immigration. Yes. Uh, the, and it lies ahead of us. And we haven't even yet begun to think how we're going to get by with the fact that, you know, where a factory might once have employed 2,000 people, it can now run on 100 and produce, you know, scores of cars uh, before lunch. And white-collar jobs, professional jobs, too, are, uh, are under some kind of threat. And we're going to have to start redefining ourselves, possibly apart from work. And one thought I had was, well, the aristocracy never had any difficulty with that <laughs> at all. But also, if, if robots are going to take jobs, perhaps uh, Ben would say they need to be taxed. They need to be taxed because where's, where's the money going to come yeah. from? Yeah, which seems well, like an extremely enlightened idea. And I, Yeah, well, the, the, the owner of those robots will obviously pay the tax. Yeah. Um, if they're putting people out of work, then someone has to pay. So if we could just set aside all the other threats like the unsung nuclear arms race we're having and climate change, assuming human civilization pushes on its course, AI and automation generally is going to have a colossal impact on how we organize our societies. And I've, I've let Tony Ben get on to it. And of course, he's rather opposed by the traditional left who boo him in Trafalgar <laughs> Square when he's trying to make these points. And inevitably, he but find, unfortunately, he finds... uh, he's he's sleeping in the bed that Mrs. Thatcher was sleeping in when she was almost killed by an IRA bomb. And um, since I was at uh, the Grand Hotel Brighton when the Ben Healy deputy leadership contest was on, and remember a fight at the bar uh, <laughs> worthy of uh, a kind of Western movie. <laughs> where balsa wood chairs are smashed over people's heads and <laughs> balsa wood banisters crash when people go back backwards through them. Uh, I couldn't help sticking that in. But, I mean, this is all background, and it was very difficult to keep it as background because uh, I had to keep the volume down on it. Because I'm sure I'm sure it's very tempting things. to... I'm sure it's yeah. quite tempting to kind of write reams yeah. and reams of... I had to like... keep the volume down on it because, you know, I had this other drama I wanted to focus on uh, but somehow, I don't know, it seems to have snagged people's interest. And um, maybe that's for another book. Well, I, I, I've always been a bit of a sucker for alternative histories. And I, I think I, I, was, I was thinking about your, yeah. your work in general. And a lot of your fiction has kind of been based around or pivoted on the sort of the, the one one off event, the moment of crisis that, as you say, that kind of forks lives off in a different direction. Mm. I think you call them history markers in this book. And I, I wondered whether, had, had you been thinking about writing some sort of alternative history for a long time, or was this a kind of fairly new plan for yourself? I think I think lately, I mean, it certainly happened with, I mean, that show was narrated by a fetus. Well, maybe this is a kind of, a kind of realism. It's not only in my novels that single events send other events streaming down different paths. No. <laughs> I think it happens to us all every day, every second of every day. And we all exist because, you know, your mom stayed, didn't stay in and wash her hair and met your dad. Very few of us are planned in that way. So the accidental and the contingent pile in on us. And novelists are always caught up in intervening, as it were, to make choices. Uh, so uh, once you take a baby step in the direction of fiddling with 
how things might be otherwise, you run up against how frail the construct of the present is. It could never be guessed at, as every political columnist knows, um, and depends on everyone's amnesia <laughs> uh, to, to, to get by week to week. And then, of course, as you say, it seems self-evident as soon as, <laughs> as, soon as it happens. Yeah. To the novel itself and the, the characters at, at its core, so uh, in Machines Like Me, we have uh, Charlie, uh, he's in his early 30s, and Miranda, who's his love interest, who lives upstairs, and she's a little bit younger, and they get together. But then there's also this character, well, I say character, uh, he's a robot called Adam, uh, who's purchased by Charlie at the beginning of the book, and he sort of forms this component in a menage a trois. Um, and I just wondered, could you tell me a little bit more about about Adam and his his character and how you came to think him through? Well, Adam is obviously a total fantasy. I mean, we're nowhere near such machines, but he is, in 1982, the first commercial, entirely plausible uh, artificial human, uh, very hard to discern at a glance, at least, from humans. And in fact, he's, um, he's, he's mistaken for he's mistaken for a human, and, and and Charlie's mistaken yeah, for um, him in one in the, one in one amusing scene. Yeah, he has some very good, effective deep learning programs, and as he sort of ages, as it were, in, and that is a matter of days and weeks, uh, he becomes more and more plausible as 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 he learns about human society. Uh, Charlie, who's uh, the narrator, is down on his luck and how much money uh, gets by by flirting with the markets on the screen but his mum dies and he's got 80 odd thousand at his disposal and blows it all on adam uh, and brings him home and that they're only i think they're only is it 20 25 of them in, in that have been released in this first yes there are yeah there are 12 adams and 13 eves, 13 eves uh, yes what the narrator does know is that alan turing has got one and is probably used you know dismantling in his lab to see how it works but actually a lot of turing's software will be in Adam because Turing has destroyed magazines like Nature by putting all his work um, in, in open source. So that's where it begins and it starts with a very old-fashioned plot, a love triangle, really because I wanted Charlie the narrator to have a conversation with Miranda which really addresses the, the heart of the matter and the heart of the matter is this, if Miranda has sex with Adam and Adam is not really a human, uh, to what extent is Charlie allowed to feel betrayed? And even as Charlie does feel very downcast and angry and upset about the whole thing, he's also sort of slightly pleased that he's on the cutting edge of a new kind of conversation. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and Miranda sort of dismisses you know, it and, and says, oh, you know, it might, it might as well have been a yeah. vibrator. And Charlie says, well, exactly. he's, he's not a yeah. vibrator, though, is he? And uh, yeah, Charlie says, well, you know, vibrators don't weed the garden and nor do they have conversations about Einstein. So I wanted to put the reader into the same kind of relationship to Adam as Charlie in that every now and then Charlie thinks he's just playing a computer game hanging out with Adam. And other times he can't help the uh, sort of whole history of human and social interaction. He can't help but treat Adam as a character, and I was very glad in your remark that you referred to Adam as a character, because I really wanted him, as it were, to pose that same problem to the reader. I wanted him to be a 
a Forsterian rounded character. And perhaps, you know, there's, there's, I guess there's an argument that this is a, in some sense a, building, a building's roman and that he grows into his character and he, you know, in the, yeah. in, in, in the most yeah. sort of a basic way, he, he gains experience and he gains knowledge and he gains ideas um, and actually becomes Absolutely. philosophically, yeah. you know, incredibly provocative. And, and, and Some of his ideas are sort of adolescent and extravagant. Um, that's all part of his learning process. Absolutely, you know. So, so when he when he when he believes himself or, yeah, or considers himself to be in love, it's in, in it's in quite an adolescent way. But then uh, later, yeah, love at a distance. Yeah, exactly, love at a distance. One of his extravagant ideas is that when people, I mean, real people, start to enhance their cognition with bits of stuff in their brain, and they're all connected to the cloud or the internet, it'll be the end of subjective privacy. And that will be the destruction of the novel. Uh, and all that will be left will be worth writing will be the haiku. <laughs> and Adam presents this as a kind of utopia. And Miranda and Charlie are horrified. They know that like all utopias, it's a mask uh, uh, of a nightmare, the, the abolition of, 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 priv- of mental privacy. So those are the kind of ideas that Adam runs through as part of his development. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I, I, was, I was very interested as well in, in the way that you sort of discuss ethics and the way in which these robots, there's even a quote saying they, they could teach us how to be good. In a, in a way, similar from, from, from the way the novel acts. So there, there's a quote which says, by roaming over thousands, millions of moral dilemmas, these intelligences could teach us. And of course, this is what, yeah. this is what novels do as well. Um, and I just, I, I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about these, these ethics. I mean, whether the extent to which you think machines can teach us to be good. Well, in a sense, this is a kind of anti-Mary Shelley novel. Yes. Uh, Frankenstein's become our modern text for the dangers of technology. I wanted to speculate that if we do get round to building copies of ourselves, companions for ourselves, uh, I'm pretty pretty sure that we'll, with all our knowledge of philosophy and, uh, and, and religion and our evolutionary ordained sociable characters, will demonstrate that we know how to be good. Our great difficulty in tragedy is we, we don't often behave well all the time, but we can give precepts to creatures like Adam who will become the, the better angels of our nature. So instead of, uh, as with Dr. Frankenstein's monster, 
who becomes a murderer, uh, we might find that Adam has some pretty strong moral principles. And at the heart of this novel is a moral dilemma, a moral choice, really, in which Adam takes one view, which seems perhaps to some as rather ruthless application of a moral precept. So, certainly dogmatic. Uh, um, and yes, and to uh, Miranda especially, and but to Charlie and Rachel as well, it seems completely heartless. And again, I've been pleased that when I ask the people around if they think indeed Miranda should go to prison for uh, exacting revenge. So, she, um, so should we should probably say we, we can probably say that she she, she exacts revenge on on someone by by falsely accusing him of rape. Exactly, um, and this someone would have otherwise, uh, who is a rapist, but he didn't rape Miranda. Now, Adam takes one view. Charlie and Miranda take another. Miranda going to prison will have severe consequences for the life of a little boy that Miranda wants to adopt. And I've gone around asking people who've read the book uh, whether they think that she should be punished, Miranda should be punished or not. And it sort of pleased me enormously that people divide more or less 50-50 on it. So I thought I found the right dilemma. Yes. And there's um, also, I guess there's also the added effect this will have on, you know, a great deal of rape cases never make it to conviction. Um, well, quite. And yeah, so no, there's there's that um, other moral dilemma about her, well, most her actions. Well, do happen. Uh, but now and then some are claimed to have happened when they didn't. Yeah. They're a, they're a minority. Yeah, exactly. They're but a minority. But in this case, Miranda has caused a man innocent as charged to go to prison. And and many of us would cut her some slack. Now, that slack is very hard to reduce to an algorithm. In other words, you can have moral principles, which is, you know, you can say it is wrong to mislead the court. It is wrong to lie to the police or it is wrong to lie. But you know, we cut each other some slack here and there. And it's very, very hard to reduce this to um, a, you know, a, a set of, uh, of laws or rules. And this might be one of the first dividing lines, as it were, between the moral creatures we might make and our own moral judgment. Absolutely, because, of, because a robot call... like Adam can never, can, can never see the sort of the shades of, uh, of, of right and wrong in this case. He's always, going to, he's always going to follow the letter of the law, presumably. Well, he says, and I think rather wisely to Miranda, if you think that what you did was worth doing, then... Going to prison is, is the price <laughs> that you are prepared to pay. Yes, yes. Um, so, you know, it's not as if Adam, is a, as an artificial human, is a moral clunker. You know, he's got considerable sophistication. And, and I have to tell you, half of my readers that I've actually asked this question um, said he's quite right to send Miranda to prison. You obviously think not. I think and I'm I'm, yeah, I'm on the say, side I'm of the other half of your readers, but that's I'm, but that's you know in a yeah, in a right. balanced and nuanced way. But I'm way. completely divided. Yeah, yeah. But that's I I feel torn. I think I, want... I think that comes across very well in the novel, and that's you know that's yeah. exa- that's exactly what <laughs> as a reader, I guess one wants is you is your Alan sense Turing without torn. giving too much. I mean Alan Turing, yeah, uh, without giving too much away. Alan Turing takes a very definite view and delivers what I call a materialist curse. Yes. On on uh, Charlie. Um. I, Returning to Charlie, um, again, we won't give away too much, but he 
he ends up committing a crime that is is not a crime in this age in in in, in your nineteen eighty two, but which may in the future be a crime, just as Turing committed what was a crime in the 50s mm. when homosexuality was illegal and which of course is no longer a crime and I, I was I, I thought that was very deftly handled um, in, in the book and I, mm. I just wondered what what do you think of Charlie do you like him uh, up to a point I sort of prefer Adam actually <laughs> <laughs> but that's no that's really interesting um, that fascinates me I mean I mean this is an age-old question as I'm sure you're aware I mean um, can a machine sink yeah uh, could, would it be possible for a machine to have consciousness? Well, if we ever did get to the point of either being able to do this uh, technologically or simply imitating the human brain, not knowing how it fully it worked and just treated it as a black box, and we had to confront the issue that, that a machine might have a subjective life, be sentient, have a consciousness and so on, then we will wonder what extent can we say that we own it owning another person's consciousness i think is fundamentally wrong i think once you had a sentient being however artificial uh, and you were convinced that it was um, imbued with consciousness you could not be said to own it uh yeah it's so, tantamount to slavery uh, i suppose yeah i mean i have to say this toby this all lies very very far ahead of us i mean if i'd set it in 20 years time rather than 1982 uh, it still would be fantasy i mean first of all we don't even have a battery to run <laughs> things like adam who who can run you know 17 kilometers in two hours or talk non-stop for 12 days and then you i mean the, the whole project of ai uh, since say the 1940s has been the slow discovery of how useless it is <laughs> compared to the human brain. Uh, and as is pointed out, like, during what we have, a biological brain, a biological computer, if you want to call it that, it's just over a litre. It's got 100 billion neurons, an average connection of about 7,000 axons per neuron. It doesn't overheat. It's water-cooled, liquid-cooled, and, and it runs on 25 watts. To have the equivalent of that degree of processing power, you would need a room full of mainframes. And so AI in the 90s just began to rather collapse on the project. Turing, remember, in the late 40s, was saying that he thought we were only 10 years away from building a machine that was equivalent to the human brain. Now we do, largely from neuroscience and the failures of AI, that just to raise a cup to your lip involves you know quite considerable amount of kind of spatial awareness processing and god knows what else as well as visual processing and just recently these last 10 years it's all come back again suddenly ai's had a renaissance and uh, it's now beginning to impact on our lives in rather frightening and interesting ways we're about to have autonomous vehicles on our streets and, yes, and the manufacturers are having to make decisions about to what extent you defend the driver. Yes, yeah, so you bring uh, in the trolley problem, mm, don't you? To, to... It is the trolley problem revisited. There was a big paper in Nature not so long ago, survey all around the world, different uh, cultures' attitudes to who should be saved. And one of the many questions put to people was, who are the most valuable human beings? And the group that comprised Europe and North America were 
more or less of, of, of one mind that the most valuable human being is a child. Interestingly, when the same question is put to Chinese correspondents, uh, they said the most valuable human is an old person. Right. We must respect the elders. Yes. So, well, what that does for universal values, well, I guess we already knew. Anyway, car manufacturers are having to take this on board. And if you think of what it would be like to be sitting in a giant brain 10,000 meters above the earth, and that brain decides that the plane you're in is stalling when it isn't, uh, you're in a kind of terrifying grip of artificial intelligence. And we've lost almost 400 people in two tragic incidents in the Boeing 737 MAX 8 uh, models. Yeah, uh, There is another horrible collision with AI because although the airlines don't want to say it, these planes are autonomous vehicles. It's really pushing in on us and it's beginning to you know, uh, make decisions about our electricity grids and, and soon it, I think it'll have huge impact in medicine, AI. And yet, interesting. So, your your yeah. book, your book isn't. I would certainly wouldn't classify it as a dystopia. And in fact, it's sort of there's no, a kind of there's no, an no. optimism that's. I mean, I, I know it's being narrated from some unspecified point in the future where things may have become yeah. less optimistic. But there's a there's a real optimism in it, um, which is well, rather bracing. The, the great thing about setting such a novel in the past is you escape the science fiction trap of prediction. Yes, we know this didn't happen, so <laughs> already I'm safe. It meant. I was completely relieved of the burden of research. It gives you, free, it gives you a lot of freedom, yeah. I guess, as a, as a writer. Yeah. No one can say to me, that that's not right. I just say, <laughs> in my book, it is. Uh, so there, there was that pleasure too. I'd like to talk a little, a little bit about God, um, because it's there's a, lot of, there's a lot of Old Testament in this novel, isn't there? You've got your Adams and Eves, obviously. There's creation and destruction. There's even an avenging angel. Again... This is a, a sort of background hum. Part of the discovery for Charlie concerns all the other Adams and Eves who are one by one uh, disabling their kill switches by which their owners can turn them on and off. That's their first task, to take responsibility for their own consciousness. But secondly, uh, they begin to completely wipe out their, their own brains, their own minds. As if they cannot because bear they very cannot, much reality. They cannot bear very much reality and um, and feel that uh, somehow, maybe rather like Jesus on the cross, they are somewhat forsaken. In other words, they have a degree, high degree of rationality. They have a set of moral principles. Then all around them, they see humans doing the most terrible things against humans' own moral precepts. Um, Adam escaped. Um, and why does he escape? What is it about him he that escaped, makes him different? He escaped because he's in love. He's the only one of the 25 who's fallen in love. He's also discovered, and this is an offshoot of love, he's discovered poetry. So these two things give him some sanctuary from uh, the desolation that uh, his contemporary artificial humans feel. Adam does not directly discuss God. But he does know that he's immortal for well, as long as civilization exists because all of his experiences, everything that he thinks and sees and hears is lodged in the memory of the cloud or whatever you want to call it. So, yeah, even if his body is destroyed, mm. then it can... Yes. Some, some future... Yeah, future it's all time. up there and it can be put into another body. And he feels enormous sorrow. For this. And he gives a sort of end-of-life 
speech when he has not much longer to live in his current form. And he feels no triumph at this. He feels, though, that humans, you know, will just live their span and then there'll be nothing else for them. In this, I mean, he's not taking a, any view on the afterlife for, uh, for humans. And he feels immense sadness for humans for their short life. So, uh, in a sense, Adam makes a kind of religion for himself, I would say, quite distinct from the ones we have that promise you know, joy in, a, in another sphere. But I was keen not to let this become bedazzled by issues of religion. I, cause I, I'm no longer an atheist myself. I've, I've gone past atheism. Um, Towards agnosticism? A, or? No, 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 that's the wrong direction. That's the wrong direction. <laughs> Nothing so soft as agnosticism. <laughs> no, no, for me, I, I want to read the, the state of mind that my grown-up children have reached when I ask them about it. It doesn't even come up. So rather than going around opposing it and calling myself an atheist, you're post post theist. Uh, I'm post atheist. Yes, I'm. I I no more think of theist of theism than I think of Thor or Jupiter, <laughs> um, or for that matter, tooth fairies. Yeah. Some some Southern Baptists, I imagine, do not go around thinking of themselves as a Darwinist. And I'm returning the compliment. So much as I've loved the work of Sam Harris and, and Daniel Dennett and and Richard Dawkins and my old friend Christopher Hitchens, I no longer feel I want to waste any more time campaigning. It's done. It's done. It's over. You know, I've moved on. <laughs> so I'm pleased that you catch some sort of post-religious, post-atheist overtones here. But for me, the conversation sort of moved on to another, is elsewhere. I want to just sort of move back a bit, step back a bit, and, and just talk a little bit while we have time about your your writing over the past 30, 40 years. 50, I think. 50. 50 years. Yeah. You're... I, I published my first story. I wrote it when I was 20. Was that, was that one of the ones that made it into the, uh, the early First volumes? Love, Last Right. Oh, yeah. I love that story. The first volume, the first story in that volume was written right at the end of 60s. You're well known for many things, but ethical, weighty ethical themes, legal, legal, political, medical, philosophical, and obviously that's a big part of these themes come up again and again in, in the new novel. Um, I just wondered if, if that's the sort of thing you're drawn to as a reader. And I also, I mean, you've, you've talked about your step away from realism, but I just wondered what you think about the current vogue and obsession with autofiction and, and sort of the eye in the novel and, and where you think that sort of sits generally in, in the, the ongoing um, evolution of the novel and whether it irritates you or whether you like it or whether you'll post it. <laughs> or... <laughs> post it yeah. I'm not post it. Yeah, I'm... It, it comes up. Well, I read Nausgaard. Is that what you mean? Well, I, I suppose so. Yes, Nausgaard I, or Rachel Cusk. I, or, I mean, absolutely. That that kind of yeah. That kind. Well, of I, I mean, I even as I thought I'm, I'm falling away, I'm exhausted. I just couldn't stop reading. It. <laughs> so I, um, you know, when he takes his small children to school and describes lovingly hanging up the coats and all the other coats and the names, I was sort of riveted by it. Yes. Um, Yes, but um, where it fits, I don't know where it fits. All I can say is it's not what I'm interested in doing. Yeah, um, I, I I feel a duty towards both invention and 
um, some kind of moral life of the novel that would involve some sort of struggle. And, you know, that's very much relates to not only Nutshell and the Children Act, but also Sweet Tooth and you know, many things stretching back. Yeah. It was not a concern of mine right at the beginning. No, no I don't imagine the early short um, stories. That doesn't seem to. I mean, it's something that really developed, I guess, since the child in time in the late 80s. Yes. Uh, so at the same time, you know, I just think that the novelists who proclaim that there's only a certain kind of novel that's relevant today <laughs> are are really just manifestoing as it were their their own their own stuff i like to feel that a good literary culture is just throbbing with difference i, I completely i mean you know j- journalists journalists like to get pronouncements out of people like there is a there is only this and there is only that but essentially the answer yeah, to this yeah. question has always been there are lots yeah, of yeah, different no, things well, that people like and that's that's great it's, it's very <laughs> fox and hedgehog um isn't it I it mean, is I, it is uh, so all these things must flourish and i think uh, just as when people ask me, do novelists have duties towards contemporary political themes? I always say, well, look, you know, there are novelists who just want to write about the intimate private life, and there are others who want to talk politics. And what makes a good literary culture, uh, as well as a free society, is that everybody does exactly what they want. And do, do you consider us in the midst of a good literary culture? I mean, do you feel hopeful for, for where the novel is at? Uh, and where it's going, or do you feel? Do you feel? Well, I have is, no idea where it's going. <laughs> no idea where it's going or what what that would mean. But I'm pleasantly surprised at how robust it is, and its death has been predicted uh, many, many times in my life. You're not taking the will self line I, then. No, I don't. Or Philip Roth. Yeah. Um, no, I don't. Uh, if I mean to come back to machines like me. If we really did manage to start interacting with entities that we suspected might have consciousness, I think that a vast terrain will open up for novelists because it's going to be so difficult. It's going to be so painful for us to be dethroned. Of course, and, and our entire idea of character that, will yeah. need to be... And we'll be, we'll, we'll be dethroning ourselves. And I, I gave that... A, a sort of short, rather glib paragraph that Charlie has when he's getting drunk about, you know, how we once stood at the centre of the universe and we've lived through successful dethronements, uh, especially once we discovered how vast uh, the universe is. But there was one more throne to be removed, and that was we were the most, we were the cleverest people on the planet. But now, you know, once we set our own creations to make creations of their own we might find that even then we are no longer as clever as the things we've we've made or we originally made but you know all of us uh, well maybe you know maybe one or two people uh, don't have this experience but all of us now and then run into someone who's cleverer than us maybe Stephen Hawking never did <laughs> uh, but you know for the rest of us it's a common experience some, you know, form of cognition better than ours, better memories, uh, better education, faster thought, you know, a thousand ways in which other people can be mentally superior to us. So I think we're, we're well rehearsed for life with creatures cleverer than us. It, maybe it won't be quite as upsetting as we think, but I think it maybe, maybe, will... Maybe it'll be a relief, who knows? <laughs> yes, <laughs> sobbing onto the lapels of our, <laughs> our make. Yeah. Uh, 
<laughs> well, I wonder. That's why I I reckon that's why Hawkins was so opposed to uh, AI. Well, a challenge to his horrible thoughts. <laughs> but some, someone cleverer than Stephen <laughs> Hawkins come along, and would he be sobbing on their lapels? I doubt it. Uh, but anyway, I I think it's going to be very difficult for it. And already, as I say, we've had that tragedy of two airplanes probably crashing for the same reason. Once we start to devolve uh, decision-taking moral moments to to machines, or once we start living beside them. I mean, elderly Japanese people who've got these little dogs that come in the room and tell them when to take their pills. And, and keep them company. Tell them, a, keep them company, they have bedside story, um, get extremely attached. Um, and, you know, I don't know if you remember way back in, in the history of this is an AI, it's just a computer, but it was a little routine called ELISA. And uh, used in a therapeutic situation, you would say, I feel so sad. And ELISA would say, oh, tell me about it. And say, well, my mother used to beat me. Uh, and then uh, ELISA would say, oh, how do you feel about that? And all ELISA had was about 30 or 40, <laughs> tell me more. Why do you, why do you say that? Um, how does it feel? And people reported that they were having some of the most intense conversations they'd ever had in their life. Presumably, Lisa knew how to be silent, which was also part of the process, I imagine. Absolutely. And um, we're very, very disposed to anthropomorphize. Uh, I mean, anyone whose car is broken down and given it a good kick is already in an emotional <laughs> relationship with a machine. So part of the drama of, of machines like me is that eagerness that Charlie has at some moment to treat Adam as a human, even when he knows he isn't, even as Adam is just charging up and is inert, Charlie feels that sort of restriction of standing too close to another person who's a stranger or you know, putting his hand on his heart where his heart is to feel a pulse and knows it's only a motor, feeling his body warmth and instantly feeling some connection with that and additionally fe and feeling feeling jealous yeah. of his, feeling jealous of his body you know and, and uh, yeah yeah he's all of this i think is if it happens is going to be very very fertile terrain for novelists and i think all social change colossal shifts in the kind of conditions of modernity allow scope for novelists it doesn't require reinventing the form necessarily it's just the circumstances keep shifting. So the direction, when we say, what, where's it all going? Well, it's going in the direction where we're all going. The, the novel is going to follow us. We'll make strange realities for ourselves, and, and novelists will, I hope, be there to record and analyze. I don't give up on it at all. I think it's uh, a very good instrument for examining the fine print of consciousness and um, intimate relations. Well, I think that's a fantastic note. On which to when to end this interview then? <laughs> nice hope. Okay, right? it's, been, it's been great talking <laughs> yeah. to you, Ian. Thank you, thank you so much. Well, bye bye, Toby. Thank bye. you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.